What's the worst part about breaking four tackles and running into the end zone for the game-winning touchdown? Not having your Wayfair still with you to protect your eyes from all the flashbulbs. Sounders, keep your shades anchored and where they belong during life's greatest feats. Head to soundergoods.com and use promo code KTTC to get 10% off and free shipping with any order. You're listening to the Keefe to the City Podcast. Here's Neil Keith. All right, so before the winter meeting started, I was uh, pretty much a 10 out of 10 scared about the Yankees and their future and what uh, 2015 would look like and how the summer would go, but that was before they uh, shored up a shortstop for the future, the first one since uh, Derek Jeter, the first one since I was in fourth grade. They've made a change. Uh, the bullpen is looking to come into shape right now, and Chase Headley is once again a Yankee and uh, just reported um, this morning is that Chris Capiano is back in the mix, so a little uh, rotation stability as well. And here to join me to talk about the Yankees and their offseason is Chad Jennings, the Yankees beat writer for the Journal News and the popular Low Hud Yankees blog as well. Chad, how's it going today? Good, man, good. It must be kind of at least a letdown, though, to be away from uh, San Diego and back in the, uh, the the wintry mix a little. Oh, no, I, I literally, those winter meetings, man, I, it's funny, you know, you're in this beautiful spot, and every day I'd wake up in my uh, hotel room and look out over the water and a battleship out there or aircraft carrier out there. I mean, it was an amazing view, and I walked outside one time <laughs> in the course of the week, and that was to go directly across the street to have dinner one night and come back. <laughs> So pretty much I looked at a hotel lobby and a uh, hotel ballroom that was set up as a press workroom. That was was my week. I guess I always wondered because they always seem to have the winter meetings in like uh, Orlando or now in San Diego. It always seems to be a great place. And I always thought, you know, that that would be a nice place to go spend uh, a few days working. But I guess it's really not what it's cracked up to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's it is what it is. It's uh, it's an exciting kind of time and, and there's obviously a lot of stuff happening. It's it's a weird mix of you're kind of on edge the entire time. Um, and it was weird on West Coast time. I, you know, I, I had alarms set for like 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. just to wake up really quickly and make sure nothing was happening that I needed to be, <laughs> be making calls out east on. Um, it was a, yeah, it's, it's a weird deal. But it's, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's, 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 a, it's sort of a fun time because there are so many other reporters out there. But it's kind of nice to see everybody and, and hang out a little bit, but for the most part, you're just kind of on edge the whole time and checking with a bunch of people and a bunch of phone calls and texts and hoping to run into somebody in the lobby. Well, before the winter meetings got going, uh, the Yankees get Didi from the Diamondbacks. They mm-hmm. sign Andrew Miller, and I thought going into the offseason that I did want Andrew Miller, but I wanted David Robertson more uh, just because um, what he's done here, he's proven here, he's been here. Um, he did a nice job filling in in the first year without Mariano, and I really thought they needed to get both of them because last year the bullpen without Robertson and Batances was sort of a mess, and once you got into Sean Kelly and Adam Warren, who, who wore down across the season, um, and then they turned to guys like David Huff and Rich Hill at points, right. and it was just a disaster. I thought they had to get both guys in. It seems like everyone is excited about Andrew Miller. Uh, he, he brings a different element as a lefty, that nasty slider. But it's almost like they made a lateral move, and the bullpen's in the same shape it was a year ago. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, the one thing that I – I mean, I do think Robertson was a better fit than, than Miller just because at least you know Robertson. Robertson's a known quantity. I mean, he can you know he can handle the ninth inning. You know he can handle New York. Um, he, he's, and he's just been consistent. I mean, his track record – to me, his track record is better and more impressive than Miller's. Miller's been outstanding for a couple of years now, but and, and I think Miller had better numbers last year. 
But at the same time, you know, you put him in that, in this environment and in the ninth inning, I don't know how good he would have been. Who knows? I mean, I don't think, I, I think the Miller signing's fine. You know, this is, uh, that's kind of a going rate for an elite reliever right now, especially one that can go more than one inning. So I, I have no real problem with the Miller signing. I just thought Robertson was a better fit. But, uh, you look, ultimately, bullpens, you know, you're going to see a lot of guys come and go, and, and, and roles are going to have to change, and, 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 and their relievers, to some extent, are kind of unpredictable from year to year. So maybe it was a risk to uh, to invest too heavily in Robertson. But to me, for the difference, I think I would have rather had him over Miller. Yeah, and I think uh, to that point, the fact that they're so unreliable year to year and guys have outstanding years, and I remember you know, going back a few years when it was like J.J. Putz was supposed to be the next big thing, and that was just a one-year right. wonder. And it seems like there's so many closers like that, and the fact that Robertson's been so good since pretty much since 2009. He had a, a rocky rookie season in 08, but he's been so good in his whole career with the Yankees that I felt like he was he's one of the only guys you can really trust, and that should have been the number one reason to bring him back, aside from the fact that he's home grown he's been here he succeeded here um he's filled a lot of different roles here and now has done a pretty good job in the closers role it just didn't really make sense and it's not like the white Sox really gave him an offer he couldn't refuse in, the, in a similar situation to what happened with, with uh cano and the mariners uh that that was money that the easily the yankees could have easily afforded yeah yeah that's kind of the way the way i looked at it it it, it wasn't an off the charts contract i mean look it was a huge contract for a reliever but that's sort of the way the market has gone now. You know, when a reliever hits for agency, that's kind of what they're worth now. And not maybe not worth, but that's certainly what they're going to get. And um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't a Cano situation where the Yankees were blown out of the water. I mean, shoot, they were willing to go pretty close to that to get Andrew Miller. So I was a little bit surprised they let him go. You know, and they talked a lot about value in the draft pick they're going to get for Robertson. But it's funny to, talk, to hear them say, we really value this draft pick we're going to get for Robertson. And they're getting that at the expense of, you know, one of their very best draft picks of the past decade. So it, it, it's a, it was an interesting way for them to see them prioritize things, just because I thought that, that Robertson really fit really well for them. And, and I, I thought that at that price, if they're not blown out of the water, that they would have been able to make up the difference. I know that the Yankees would probably never go to this extent, but if you look at the situation with Robertson and the fact that everyone knew he wasn't going to accept the one-year qualifying offer because uh, he could get a multi-year deal for much more money and have some financial and job security, but when you look back now at the Yankees, and granted they were still in the thick of things throughout the summer, to get that, you know, to get this one draft pick for Robertson, and given the history of the Yankees in the draft isn't exactly stellar uh, during the Cashman era, right. but it almost makes sense that they should have just traded him last last summer. Yeah, maybe. I think they still kind of thought they could get him back. And, and you know, the, the fact that they do have the draft pick is some insurance for not trading him. Um, you know, I don't know what, you know, who knows what they could have gotten in return. And and to be honest and to be fair, I guess, to them, I think their draft picks here recently have been a lot better. Uh, you know, they always deny that they've changed their philosophy, but it really seems like they have. You know, we've seen them in the, we saw them in most recent years kind of taking these high-risk guys in the first round and and really hoping they strike gold. And then the last couple of years, they've taken some more of these, you know, they took some college bats in 2013. They took college arms last year. You know, guys that have, uh, they're a little bit more reliable. And, and at least you feel confident that they could come up and play some role, even if they're maybe not uh, destined to be superstars down the road. You know, a guy like Chicago, a guy like Linder. I think they've done a better job of drafting, so maybe that draft pick is worth a little bit more. But, I mean, you make a fair point. I mean, if you knew you were out of it, why not trade Robertson and get something better in return? And another thing with the Robertson thing is that 
I know they have this rule where they sort of tell their free agents to go get a deal and then they come back and then it's the Yankees' job to match it or go over it. But for Cashman to say that um, they never made an offer to Robertson, I wasn't sure if that's after the White Sox made an offer, if they never made an offer, period. And then once mm-hmm. the deal was finalized, he said something along the lines of, that was a level we couldn't play on. And it wasn't like he didn't say it was a level that they didn't want to play on with Robertson. He said couldn't, and it almost made it sound like the Yankees are a, a small market or poor team or something. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. You know, you're also, I think, talking about there are teams. I think that there are teams that can afford to take a big risk. You know, they if a team has maybe like one or two long-term commitments, maybe they're willing to go a little bit farther in terms of taking a risk on a free agent. But the Yankees are a team right now that's just loaded with bad contracts, and it's almost like how many more risks can they take in, in that in that vein? You know, which is why I think they've gravitated towards some of these you know, four-year deals instead of going for the bigger names that are getting six years just because that, that way they don't have to sign too far in it. So I, I do think that there is a little bit extra risk to some extent on the Yankees side just because they already have a roster with so many questionable contracts that it's almost like they're just going to throw – it's more risky for them to throw bad money at bad money. You know, they, they, they can't keep piling those on, whereas another team that doesn't really have as many risky contracts already on the roster, maybe they can afford to take – one or two risks along the way because they they don't they're they're not as they, they're not starting from such a risky situation. Well, with those four year deals that you talk about, uh, Chase Headley gets one for fifty two million dollars, and there was the rumor uh, over the last couple of weeks that he had an offer on the table for four years, sixty five million, which everyone thought he was crazy to not instantly sign. And now the fact that he takes fifty two million dollars from the Yankees, um, I know Cashman said he really wanted to be a Yankee, and either he wanted to be a Yankee. Uh, more than probably anyone ever to leave that much money on the table. It almost seems like that sixty-five million dollar offer was more of a you know an agent strategy rather than something that was actually real. Well, I mean, who knows? I don't know what the bigger offer is that he left on the table. You know, maybe the bigger offer he left on the table was the sixty-five million, and it just doesn't matter. Um, it's it's I, I like when you see a guy kind of at that stage in his career decide that he's going to set some other priorities. I mean, look, even if you if it is, it, it, he's getting. He's getting quite a bit of money anyway. You know, I think, I think he's going to be just fine. <laughs> well, that was the number one thing I thought they had to do. Aside, I wanted Robertson and Miller. They only got one, so I guess I'll take it. And they got the shortstop under control with Didi. And I don't really know what to say about him until we actually see him play because there's a lot of speculation about the type of player he'll be in New York and how he'll uh, transition here as a mid-20s player. But when it came to third base, because of the fact that Prado's a guy you could really put around anywhere. Um, you didn't really want to have to waste him at third and then plug a rookie in at second and then rely on A-Rod to be a first baseman, third baseman, DH hybrid, and then worry about Teixeira's health. So Headley seemed to be like the most important piece probably for the entire offseason just because he allows them to do so many other things, and it almost seemed like a necessity. And the longer they took to sign him, I just wondered what their direction or strategy was. But um, maybe they just knew all along that, that they'd end up getting him and it'd just be a matter of time. Well, I also just think that he had to wait and, and let the third base market play out a little bit. You know, I mean, he he played it the right way. I mean, he waited to sign until he was the best position player out there. And uh, and like you said, it was clearly a need for the Yankees, and the Yankees had made it clear from the beginning that they wanted to bring back Headley. And so then, if he waits around a little bit, you know, he could have been a bargain signing. I mean, you could look at him as you could look at him as a guy who is, you know, he obviously has not repeated his 2012 season. He still kind of has this lingering back issue that's been a problem in the past. There were, there were ways to sort of look at him and knock his value down. He played, he and his agent, you know, played it out the way to, to really bring his value back up. 
and and that probably helped him sign for a little bit more money. I mean, I think that might have been more of the waiting game. I don't know that the Yankees were necessarily waiting to sign him. I think maybe Headley was sitting around waiting. You know, he gets Sandoval off the market. You get Hanley Ramirez off the market, two guys who could have been third-base options if teams wanted to go that direction. And that only raises Headley's profile and, and, and certainly raises his earning potential. I know that uh, that Cashman said since the winter meetings that the Yankees don't seem to be a player for Scherzer and whether to believe that or not because of uh, how many teams are involved and him be, uh, being a, a client of Scott Boris's, maybe that's just you know another ploy from uh, from a general manager. But at this rate, with the rotation as it is, where you got Tanaka, Pineda, CC, and Nova coming back at some times, um, Capuano could fit in there, I guess, until Nova comes back, and then that fifth spot's like Phelps or Warren or someone else. Uh, the rotation on paper, when everyone's healthy, looks great and sounds great, but when Pineda's really, you know, the guy who you can trust the most for his health going into this season, and he he missed most of last season, has missed just about his entire three-year career with the Yankees. That's pretty scary to think that this rotation could, you know, it hinges on uh, one bad motion or one bad pitch from all these pitchers throughout spring training. Um, I feel like they should be involved in Max Scherzer, and I know that there's a lot more free agents available after next season. Um, a lot, you know, better financial uh, decisions could be made after next season. But because it's the Yankees and because they don't like to waste any season, I feel like they will be involved in Scherzer, uh, even if this guy, you know, ends up getting a, uh, a monumental historical contract. And it almost seems like they should be in him on this point just because of how many question marks they have with the health of the rotation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they were smart. I mean, look, Scherzer wasn't going to sign now anyway. I mean, he was, he's always going to wait until, until January. What, what I think is interesting, I, I think they were, I think they're telling the truth, and I think that they're, they were correct in saying that up until now they weren't planning to play on Scherzer, and that they, that's not a level that they want to go to. I mean, again, it goes back to the idea that they have so many risky contracts already. Are they just going to try to fix that by throwing huge money at another one? Um, you know, because all these pitchers, I mean, we've seen it over and over again. I mean, even a guy, you know, like, you know, you saw Nova last year go down with Tommy John. I mean, that's a guy who you would have thought was relatively healthy. He's out for the year. Um, CC has been a workhorse throughout, and now all of a sudden can't really stay healthy and has had these issues. Um, Tanaka's still fairly young, had a lot of innings, but he's also young, and not, you know, his elbow ligament went out. Um, you know, there are, these guys always, you know, it's always a huge risk signing a pitcher, especially to a long-term deal. But I do think, too, that all of a sudden now the pitching market has played out in such a way that, you know, we saw, you know, the Yankees now are giving $5 million to Capuano. I don't know that that's where they expected to go when the offseason started. I think they thought that they'd be able to get a Brandon McCarthy-type guy, but we've seen so many of those guys come off the board, and, you know, McCarthy gets this crazy four-year deal from the Dodgers. I mean, that, that's a massive commitment to a guy who's only once thrown more than about 170 innings in a season. Um, so the pitching market has just not played out the way I think the Yankees hoped it would and the way the Yankees needed it to. And I do wonder if that, as we get deeper and deeper, you know, you get maybe into the middle of January, if there's still no clear pitching option out there and if, you know, Corona isn't going to come back or whatever, that all of a sudden if the Yankees find themselves really realizing that they're, they're in a bind with the rotation and if they do sort of end up convincing themselves that it's worth taking that risk, I'm sure. You mentioned McCarthy and uh, he was a candidate people thought they should try to extend during last season. The same with Headley. 
And and along those same lines, Robertson, because he probably should have been taken care of before this ever happened, before he ever became a free agent. And I know the Yankees have that negotiating rule where they won't uh, sort of extend contracts that are still playing out. And though they've gone against it twice, they did so with Cano uh, back when he, he got that first extension, and they did it with Gardner last year. It almost seems like it's time to scrap that rule because no other franchise is really playing by that rule. And everyone, all, all you know, homegrown young players or guys who look like their projections are, are going to go well for the future get uh, get locked up and they get picked up well before they can ever hit the free agent market. And maybe they didn't want to um, you know, take that chance on McCarthy because he's been injured so many times. And maybe they didn't um, really know what Headley would be. But at least in Robertson's case, it seems like with these guys who are proven players who they built through the system, why not get rid of that rule? and start to lock more guys up quicker. Oh, yeah, well, I think the rule is gone. I mean, they, they showed that with Gardner. Um, the but way then, they, didn't, told but then me, they wouldn't have done it. They didn't do it with Cano is my thing. Like, they, they, could, they had the chance to do that. I know they made him, like, a 175 offer, but they knew he wasn't going to take that either. Well, yeah, but the, it's a difference between uh, trying to sign a guy to a deal that makes sense to try to extend him and still trying to meet a guy's asking, asking price. You know I mean? Headley and McCarthy in particular – coming sort of through their seasons, the way those had played out, I don't think either one of those would have been interested in signing a September extension with the Yankees. I mean, that they wanted to hit the market for the very reason that we just saw, that you know that they're not going to sign up with a team that they've been with for two months, especially when both of them were coming off a really bad first half. I mean, they want to play out this good second half and then hit the market and really capitalize on their uh, on their earning potential. And, and that's who I've heard it the same way that this always happened with Robertson. But I guess with Robertson, as I've heard it anyway, that there was never any uh, talk from the other side about about a, a willingness or a desire to talk about an extension. You know, that they, they said even when they would go toward these arbitration things, it was more just sort of silent on the other end, and then they would wait and they kind of exchange arbitration figures and figure out a contract from there. It, I, I think that the, the desire to, to – or the, the unwillingness to, to sign extensions, I don't, I don't think the Yankees are there anymore. I think that they are still – very much so there, but I also think that the way free agency is now, I think a lot of players are really interested, especially once you wait until they reach like a superstar status like a Cano. You know, once he hits that mark, he, he knows that his earnings on the market is massive, and then it's harder, it's much harder then to get that guy to sign an extension that makes sense from the team side because the player is looking at this saying, well, if I just hold out, you know, I can hit the open market and get something much, much bigger than that. So I, I think that part of it is a two-way street at this point. You know, a guy like Gardner is more likely to do it because he's had the injury history because for a while he was kind of a platoon player and was labeled a fourth outfielder, and he's coming off a nice year and sees that as the opportunity to go ahead and cash in, and he did it. But, you know, some of these guys who have longer track records and, and really see themselves building, 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 and now all of a sudden the free agency is right there. I think those players are often a lot less uh, interested in signing an extension. And, and sometimes that's as much a factor as the teams I'm willing to. Well, uh, from talking uh, the last couple of weeks and doing podcasts with guys up in Boston who cover the Red Sox, and uh, they pretty much had the same thing to say about Lester in the sense that it seemed like no matter what, he always wanted to hit the open market and test free agency. Um, even if the Red Sox had up that four-year, $70 million offer last season, it just always seemed like for him um, and his agent, he was going to test the market no matter what. And for you being out in the winter meetings and, and Lester sort of uh, getting the headlines throughout the entire week, um, I thought maybe the Yankees would be more in on him than they were, and maybe they were, and we just don't know about it. But it seems like they've always gone uh, and they've always favored Scherzer versus Lester in, 
this um, starting pitching sweepstakes. And maybe that has to do with the fact that Lester was never going to be a Yankee and never wanted to come to New York. And it was always between Boston, San Francisco, and Chicago. But did you ever get the sense that they'd make a run at Lester, possibly the both of them, and do something they've done uh, a handful of times over the last you know decade where they sort of make a huge splash and surprise everyone? No, I didn't think they were going to do that this year. Uh, you know, again, I think that the, it's the same thing with Scherzer. I think when the offseason started, I don't think the Yankees had any plans to get in on those uh, on either one of those two. I think they just saw those as, as you know, risky contracts they don't want to jump into at, at that level. Um, I think the only thing that would possibly get them in on Scherzer or that would have gotten them in on Lester is if everything, you know, if the pitching market develops in such a way that they're not able to get anything that, that really they feel like significantly helps the rotation and leaves them in trouble. And they may get there at some point. You know, Scherzer might stay on the market long enough that the Yankees get to that point of desperation and, and to that point of, of really worrying about the holes that they have. I think Lester came off the board too early and came off quickly enough that I don't think the Yankees were there yet. You know, then because he saw when as soon as Lester went, that's when the pitching market started to move. I think the Yankees were maybe still still had some hope that they could get some of these other smaller deals done um, before Lester. So I don't think I don't think they were planning to play on Lester, and then Lester moved early enough that that I don't think that enough dominoes got to fall where they were ever going to get in on him. It, you know, it's a matter of time before we'll see whether enough dominoes fall. You know, into whenever mid January or so for the Yankees to actually convince themselves to get in on Scherzer. As we get closer here to spring training and uh, we get around the holidays and, and closer to pitchers and catchers, it seems like the the A Rod stories uh, after the new year will start to start to fall and come in like uh, dominoes and, and take over the headlines. And then once you get to Tampa, I'm sure that'll be the talk of the town. But for A Rod now and, and the fact that he doesn't really have uh, a set position, and now with Headley back, um, and the fact that they really don't even know what they're getting with A Rod, um, he sort of has to play his way into a role and on this team now after a year off. And for someone who has to cover A Rod for a job and be there and deal with uh, you know the on the field and the off the field nonsense with him, is there? any point where you get sick of the A-Rod storylines and, and would rather just focus on the baseball? Or are you are you into it? Are you into the fact that he's a lightning rod and brings so much attention to the team? Oh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not interested in it to the point of, you know, you know, oh, I, I like it when there's controversy and stuff like that. I don't necessarily like that, but I like when they're interesting stories. And I think Alex is an interesting story. I, you know, whether he can be a productive player or not is an interesting story. You know, I mean, it, that's there before we even start thinking about what's his role going to be and, and, you know, should he play every day and all that. It's just a matter of him showing up and let's see if he can still hit, let's see if he can still field, can he move around, can he stay healthy, is he a viable player? You know, there there are so many check marks along the way that, that the Alex story is interesting. I mean, it has some of that, like, tabloidy, um, sensationalist elements to it. But it's a pretty interesting baseball story as well. I mean, this is one of the great players of the past two decades who's seen his, his reputation completely fall apart. And now we're back to a, a baseball story with him where it's not about reputation. It's not so much about PEDs. It's not about all of this scandalous stuff off the field. Suddenly, Alex is a legit baseball story again. It's just, is he a good baseball player anymore? That, that's the big story here. I mean, there are all these other things hanging around him. But for the first time in a long time, we get to write and, and really look at Alex as a player who, who's, whose most interesting qualities are purely coming from a baseball standpoint, strictly in the sense of how good of a player can he be at this point. 
Well, as one of the uh, few members left of the last championship team and, and the other guy being on, on in that infield on the other side, Teixeira, who's coming off uh, what was another injury plague season with a, a pretty much a laundry list of uh, odd injuries from his wrist to the ribs to the lightheadedness to the lat to the tired legs. Um, and at this point, I know that there's there's not much expectation for Mark Teixeira and maybe he will... Uh, Maybe he will rebound, his wrist will be another year stronger, and he will sort of get back some of that power he's lost and um, be a better run producer, maybe, possibly, hopefully hit for a better average. But as we sort of get into this twilight of the, the Mark Teixeira contract and looking back, and I thought at the time they had to do it because of the holes they had and coming off that first uh, you know, missed postseason in, in the last uh, two decades and since before Tory was there, I thought that the share deal had to be done. And at the time, I had no gripes with it, so it's hard to, to really complain about it now. But it's just more of you know what Teixeira has become and, and the fact that he's broken down so quickly and become um, pretty much the extreme uh, opposite of what he used to be. Is, is there any hope, really, that Teixeira will have any of that back, or are we just looking at you know, the 220-22-70 guy uh, down the stretch here and hope that he can get into 100-120 games? Well, I don't think he's going to be the MVP candidate he was a few years ago. But, I mean, I think he he showed in the first half of last season that he can still hit for power, and if he still has that, that's, that's kind of enough. I mean, that well, I mean, I think he slugged through the first three months of the season, something like 478 or something like that. I don't know the exact number, but it, it was a number that would have been like in the top 20 of baseball this year, you know, now that now that offense is down so much. You know, shifting and everything else has obviously cut down on his ability to hit for average, but that's just the way that is. His production really needs to hinge on his ability to hit for power, and if the power's still there, if the power's there the way he showed in the first half of last season, then I think he's still a productive player. He obviously wore down in the second half, and maybe that's because of the wrist. Maybe that's because he had all those nagging injuries. Maybe that's because he didn't have a full offseason to really train the way he's used to doing. Whatever it is, if he can avoid that second-half slide and can continue to hit for power all the way through to the end of September and, you know, best-case scenario, into October, then, then yeah, I, I think there's still some hope that, that Teixeira can be a productive player and a, and a really useful player. Um, can he be an MVP candidate like he was in 09? Uh, no, I don't think that he's going to be that, and I don't think he expects to be that. He's just not going to – he doesn't hit for enough average and, and get on base quite as much as he did then. But if he can still be a, a source of power and still play a pretty good first base, you know, it's a, it's a really improved infield defense that the Yankees are going to have next year, and to share it could be a big part of that as well. Um, so I think there's still some hope for him being a productive, good, everyday first baseman, but – I don't think there's any sense or any reason to really hold out hope that he's going to be the MVP candidate that the Yankees signed, whatever that was, six years ago. Well, two weeks ago, I, I wasn't so confident about um, the way the offseason was going, coming off these last two years, what the future of the team was holding. And now that they've made uh, a, a few good moves for uh, both the future and stability right now, um, I'm starting to believe in this team. And as we get closer to opening day, I'll get you know more irrational confidence, thinking that they're going to be awesome and it's going to be a great season and all that. But as a beat writer talking to a Yankees fan, I mean – you know, what is your level of comfort if you were a fan right now for you covering this team? I mean, um, should we expect to see a better performance than we saw last season? And I know so many things went wrong last year between the offense and injuries and losing 80% of the rotation. I guess really the only way you can go from there is up. But uh, before we did the podcast, I was listening to the one we did last year after the winter meetings. And I, and I said the same thing to you where I said, you know, it can't get worse than it did this year for as many injuries as they had and stuff. So it might have gotten worse last year than it did in 2013, but I feel like it can't get any worse coming into next year. 
maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm I'm not nearly as sold. Uh, I mean, you know, I keep talking about that. You know, Teixeira could be better. Um, you know, if he can continue his second half, you know, Gregorius should be a better defensive and offensive shortstop than than what Derek Jeter was last year. At least seems like an an upgrade over what they had at third last year. Pato seems like an upgrade at second. Uh, you think McCann should be better? Surely Beltran's going to play more and be a more productive hitter. But a lot of those are things that, you know, you could also very easily see it going the other way. I mean, at the end of the second half of last season may have been a sign of things to come for Shara. Uh, Gregorius may, I mean, he already lost a starting job once. What if he's just not an everyday shortstop at this level? What if McCann last season, that's what he is. But Beltran has the age and the injuries on him. He may not be a, a legitimate right fielder anymore. I mean, I think there are real questions about where they're going to get their offense from, even with health. I mean, even if, look, even if Beltran is healthy, is he still a good hitter? Um, even if Teixeira is healthy, does he still have whatever it was he had a few years ago to let him hit home runs? I mean, he certainly didn't show it second half of last season. I think there are real concerns about where they're going to get their offense, even with all of those pieces in place. And then that's not even factoring in the, what I think should be just overwhelming concerns with the rotation. I mean, that, that's, I, I think there are real problems there, and they needed to get depth. I don't necessarily know that they have to get a Scherzer type, but I think they've got to get some other pieces in place that can slide in. You know, I mean, maybe Banuelos, you know, really emerges again and, and looks like he can be a starting pitcher. Brian, maybe Brian Mitchell, you know, sort of follows the path that, that Shane Green did and becomes a, a guy who can come up and get ground balls and, and, and looks like a, a really legit starting pitcher at the major league level. I don't know. I mean, those things are certainly possible, but I thought it was kind of remarkable the way they were able to piece together a rotation last season. I don't know if they'd be able to do that a second year in a row. And this year, you've got a rotation that's certainly facing the same kind of injury concern. And again, and you know, the bull and bullpens are sort of changed from year to year. Right now, I think the bullpen again looks like a strength, but but you know, you just never know. I just think that there are so many, there's so much uncertainty with this team, and it's kind of like. It's almost like with every element of this team, it's possible to say, hey, you know, it could be great. And it's also really easy to look at it and go, but, man, it's really easy to define the ways it could all go wrong. Um, right down to, like, you can this year you could really pinpoint the exact body part that you're worried are going to fall apart on a guy. You know, it, it, that's, that's kind of amazing. I think there's a lot of risk to this team. And, and, and it's certainly possible to look at it and see how it could work out. I just think it's also just as easy, if not easier, to look at it and see all the ways in which it could completely fall apart. I think the one positive thing to look forward to is the fact that has, as bad as they were the last two seasons uh, compared to Yankee standards, um, the fact that they were in it for so long, at least in the second wild card spot and now with the five-team uh, playoff format, and I was completely against that when it was implemented because I was so used to the Yankees winning the division, and I just figured like at some point they would get screwed over by it being the, the one seed and playing the wild card winner, and, and now I'm all for it because that's been their only um, even sort of way in the last couple years, and I think if anything shows and it's that uh, you just have to be like a pretty good team to be involved in that mix because they were pretty bad and they were in it till the final week, final two weeks of the season the last two years. So I guess if the one positive thing is as long as they're good, they're above 500 and they hover around that, that 88 to 90 mark, it seems like uh, they'll at least be in the mix for it. And I guess that's something positive to take away, even if there is a lot of question marks still around the team. Yeah, oh, sure. And, and I mean, I think you're seeing that around baseball. You, know, you see a team like the White Sox that, didn't seem like it was very good. They could the White Sox think they can win right now. Um, you know, you see some of the same things you saw. You've already seen a team like Pittsburgh emerge and, and the A's sort of find a way to stay relevant for a long time. 
uh, the Blue Jays doing the same. You know, they're making moves that suggest they think that they're ready to, to make a legitimate push. Um, you know, you saw the Orioles start to do that a couple of years ago and, and, and really push themselves to the top of the division. I think a lot of teams see that now that they're with the, with the extra wild card, that you're right. I mean, if they can make just a little bit of tweaks and get themselves just a little bit better, that there is a chance to get into the playoffs. And at that point, you sort of hold your breath and roll the dice and hope things work out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're, that, there's certainly a lot to be said for that. You know, if, if certain things go right, it, it sometimes doesn't seem like it's, it's – the difference is kind of sometimes pretty small between being a playoff team and being a team that felt like it wasn't very good. I mean, that, when you said the Yankees were actually kind of close to making the playoffs and they felt like they were a terrible team last year. So there, there's something to be said for that, but I think that at the same time, if you want actual confidence going in and where you feel like, yeah, this is definitely a team that can contend – I don't know that the Yankees are there right now. I think that they, just like a lot of other teams, are a team that, a team that can say, well, if these things go right, then we can make a run. But there are also these glaring holes and these glaring concerns that could very easily uh, uh, keep the team from making any sort of uh, any sort of push towards the playoffs. All right, Chad, thanks for coming on today and uh, talking some Yankees baseball. It's still a while to go before even uh, spring training gets underway. But as a beat guy and uh, with the holidays coming and going, when is it that you know you start to get that itch to get to Tampa and get everything underway? Is that is that already come or are you still a little ways away? Oh, no, I think I'm a ways away from that right now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the offseason becomes kind of a, a drag at some point. Um but you know, spring training, <laughs> spring training tends to drag sometimes down there too. Um, from a you know, just strictly from a covering its side. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at, at some way, you know, you you do kind of get you get ready just for for stuff that that really counts to get going, I guess, and and to get down there and, and really start to see some of this stuff shake out because at some point it, it gets boring just speculating. You know, you kind of want to see something real begin to happen. All right, Chad. Thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Yes, I'm good, man.